At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We all have questions, and we're all looking for the answers. But sometimes, navigating the answers to cultural issues through the lens of the gospel can be challenging. Join us for our Asking for a Friend series, where each week we'll answer tough questions and provide you with gospel-centered answers that you can share with a friend. Great to be with you today. I love uh, your campus. I love your church family. And I'm so glad that I get to share in, uh, in this moment with opening God's Word with you. Uh, if you don't know, uh, one of the unique things I think that is, stands between a relationship with the Plymouth campus and the Farmington Hills campus is that uh, of all the campuses at Woodside, there's really only one that I can think of that's like a granddaughter uh, church, if you will, uh, in that way. Usually most of the mergers and the new campuses that have started have come about through interaction with leadership uh, in Troy with, with our senior pastor and our executive team and that sort of thing. But the Plymouth campus was started through the leadership of the Farmington Hills campus in relationship with some of the people that were in uh, Plymouth at the church at Plymouth that merged and became Woodside Plymouth uh, some nine years ago. And so uh, we consider ourselves a daughter church of this particular campus. And so it's always uh, a blessing to me. It's always kind of like I feel like I'm coming home uh, in some way, back to the mother church, uh, if you will, when I'm able to be here at Farmington Hills. And I I just love your staff and your team uh, so much. I do feel that your campus owes our campus uh, a little bit in this area. In that, and let me just explain, First of all, we've, we've given you high-quality people. Uh, the Purdy's, first-round draft choices, uh, very good. Yeah, they came from the Plymouth campus first um, in that way. We also sent Ryan up here. Um, we were ready to get rid of him uh, in Plymouth. Um, we've had him for too long, and I couldn't do any more with him. So um, whatever growth he's got to come, that's going to be between you guys working that out. But uh, Joel and Allie have been just a blessing to us, and I've been been encouraged to get to know them over the years. And then uh, Jacob and Alicia have been close with Stephanie and I, and we have just been so thankful for what God's doing in their life and in this campus. And we're excited for what God has ahead for you as well. So thank you for letting me come and speak this morning. Uh, You have your Bible open to Psalm 77. And uh, here's the question that I have for you to think about this morning. Is anxiety or being anxious a sin? Is anxiety or being anxious a a sin. Now I can tell by the look on many of your faces, you're like, whoa, uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's a tricky one. Uh, we're doing this series over the next three weeks called Asking for a Friend, and we put this out on our social media uh, channels several months ago and said to the congregations at Woodside, hey, what questions are you asking? What are you hearing? What are you longing for our, uh, our pastors and our church to kind of address in a Sunday morning sermon and pulpit? And so we, we received... Uh, uh, just a plentitude of answers to or a, a questions saying, what about this? What about that? Here's this one. So I got assigned this question, is anxiety or being anxious a sin? And I will admit to you that answering this question makes me anxious. I told my wife last night, or she asked me, hey, uh, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, well, uh, I'm asking this question, is anxiety a sin? And she just got this look on her face and she said, well, good luck with that. Have fun. Um, so... I'm going to make an effort at it in some way or another, but um, it's a tricky question, no doubt, no doubt. On one hand, we would say no. We could say no. 
being anxious or anxiety itself, when we feel anxiety in our bodies, in our emotions, all of that, it's not sinful. So we can all take a breath. We're all anxious people. I mean, there's something or another that just causes us to worry or fear. And friends, that's okay. But if we open up God's word, and specifically if we listen to Jesus, we, we may be challenged by that response. Because Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus just flat out says, don't be anxious about your life. It's a, it's a command that he gives. He's, he's very clear that being anxious is something that we, we should not do. So if we listen to Jesus in that regard, we might think, well, yes, anxiety is a sin. But I think there's another side to this. Because if we said, well, Jesus said, don't be anxious, and he forbids anxiety, and so therefore it must be a sin... We have some other passages in Scripture to navigate and to deal with as well. For one, as I mentioned earlier, we are all anxious people. We have feelings and emotions and concerns. Friends, if anxiety is a sin, then to approach it as a sin would seem to teach us that we as human beings need to become some sort of detached, removed, unemotional, only logic, like robot stoic beings. If you watch Star Trek, a Vulcan, um, and that's how you should go about life. No feelings or concerns. But I think that betrays Scripture as well. And it betrays who Jesus is. Because if you look in the Scriptures and you see who Jesus is, fully God and fully man, Jesus expressed and felt all sorts of things. He had deep feelings. He was a man of deep passions. And I would argue he even had and expressed what we would call and consider anxiety about things in his life as well, specifically in the hours before he went to the cross. Luke, in Luke's gospel, Luke twenty-two forty-four, he describes Jesus as being in agony. Jesus himself said to his disciples, my soul is troubled anxious, concerned, worried. One renowned American theologian, B.B. Warfield, in his message on the emotional life of our Lord, he said, the state of mind in which this sharp conflict went on is described by the Greek term with the fundamental implication of that which is agitation, disquietude, and perplexity. Or in other words, anxiety. Even, even the Apostle Paul talked about being anxious. He spoke of the daily pressure he felt and the, and I quote, anxiety for all the churches that he carried, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Both Jesus and Paul felt real things. They had anxiety and had anxious moments. So, so I think it's a little bit of a dilemma here we can't say anxiety is not a sin because Jesus commands us not to be anxious, but nor can we say anxiety itself is a sin because Jesus expressed anxiety and he was without sin, perfect in every way. And that, friends, is why I am anxious about answering this question. It's a minefield to navigate through. So here's how I'm going to try and answer it. Okay, very simply, it seems to me the answer to the question, is anxiety a sin, lies in two things. First of all, it lies in what am I anxious about? That is to say, do I have the right priorities and focus in my life? Or am I anxious about things that really shouldn't cause me anxiety? There, there may be the little and smaller things of life or the things that I, I cannot control. 
What are you anxious about? Do you have those right priorities and focuses? And then secondly, and this is what I do want to lean into and address more particularly, what do I do when I am anxious? Where do I take my anxiety? How do I seek to address my own heart and my own soul? And am I taking my anxiety to the right place, to the right person, or am I trying to deal with it in ways that maybe I shouldn't be? So as I said, this sermon isn't so much about anxiety itself. It's dealing with what we do with our anxiety. And if I could answer the question this way, I would state it this way. By you and I rightly reflecting on God, by by rightly looking to God, rightly reflecting on Him, that will reorder our anxieties. Rightly reflecting on God will rightly reorder our anxieties. C.S. Lewis was right when he Uh, speaking from the perspective of the devil and demons in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he was right when he said this. He said, there is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading or closing off a human's mind against God. So what should I do with my anxiety? Where should I take it? Where should you take your anxiety? To answer that question, I want us, as we've already heard from Allie this morning from Psalm 77, to, to lean into this and to address it specifically. Now, one of the things you need to know about the Psalms is that the Psalms are filled with emotions and cares. This is one of my biggest answers against the logic-centered, only unemotional, detached kind of Christian life that's thrown out out there. Read the Psalms, friends. These psalmists, these, these prayers, these songs are filled with the emotions of the human heart from the highest of highs to the lowest of the depths. And they are here to give us language when we feel these things. The the Psalms supply you and I words to be able to pray and speak with God about the, the things that give us joy and the things that lower us to the dust. They give us language to take our cares to God and to pray. Psalm 77 here this morning is the song of an anxious and a troubled heart. And and while we don't know much about the writer and the specific situation of this song, the language here gives us words to express our concerns and our anxieties to God. This psalm is an earnest prayer coming from a troubled heart, and it shows us how rightly reflecting on God will reorder our anxieties. In fact, I think this psalm answers this question, how should I address my anxious heart? What should you do with your anxiety? Where should you take your heart and your soul? Now, before I lean into the psalm here, let me state one more thing about anxiety. There are times, and I think it would be be, um, painful and malpractice on my part as a pastor if I didn't give you this thought. There are times when anxiety and depression, even panic attacks and the like, should be clinically addressed. And friends, there is no shame, there is no sin in using resources such as physicians and therapists to help you rightly address the physiological responses your bodies can have to these pressures. God has given these resources to us to help us, and we can and we should utilize them. So if you feel and sense anxiety in your life and heart, if you're struggling with panic attacks and other things like that, please go and see a doctor. Get, get checked out physiologically. Be cared for well there. The Lord has given us this as his common grace to help us. But I want to help us lean into our hearts this morning. How do we address our souls in the midst of our anxiety, depression, panic, all of that? Well, let me give you three steps to help you address your anxious heart before God from Psalm 77 here today. 
First of all, the first step is to acknowledge your anxiety to the Lord. It's to acknowledge your anxiety to the Lord. Verses 1 through 4. The psalmist says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. And when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Now here, the psalmist, he is so candid and honest with what's going on in his heart and life. And he, he knows right what to do with his anxiety. Nor is he shy about it either. He, he, he just instructs us by his example to go directly to the Lord, go directly to God, and lay it all out there in front of him. He, he says, I cry aloud to God. That's where the trajectory of my anxiety is going at the very, very start. I, I'm going to shout out, cry to him. And, and he gives us, in verses one, two, 1 through 4, a way to approach God with our anxieties. Notice here, it's not a timid approach. It's not even a restrained expression of anguish. This psalmist is deeply vocalizing his pain. He's, he's yelling it out, as it were. He is hurting and even inconsolable. Notice with me just the, the phrases here. He says, I cry aloud to God. He uses his voice to express to God, God, this hurts. I'm in pain. What's going on? God, where are you? You, you can say those things to God. You can express your fear and anxiety and trouble to him. Verse 2, he says, my hand is stretched out without wearying. For, for the Israelites to, to raise up your hand, to stretch out your hand, was a posture of prayer. Much like we would encourage you to kneel when you pray and humble yourself before the, the Lord, the Israelites would raise up their hands saying, God, help me. I need you. Reach down and take hold of me and rescue me. And so he is saying here, my hand is stretched out without wearying. I am reaching until you lay hold of me, God, until you get me. I'm in so much trouble. I'm so anxious. Verse 2, he says, my soul refuses to be comforted. Even the nice passing words that he might hear from others in the community around him, it's not enough. He needs God. He says, my, my moan, my, my spirit faints. He just laid low in the dust, as it were. His anxiety has just crippled him. Verse 4, he says, I'm so troubled, I can't speak. There's just, God, there's just nothing coming out here. I'm so burdened, so worried, so anxious that I can't get words out to commune and to speak before you what I feel. Have you ever felt that this way before? Maybe for some of you this morning, you, you hear those verses and you see yourself. Like that's... That's where you sit today. You may feel that right now. And we should acknowledge that. It's okay. There are things that trouble our souls so deeply that we feel this kind of experience. And that's valid, friends. It is valid to feel your anxiety. And there's no rebuke from God. There's no correction Right, you know, verse 5 doesn't go, and God boomed from heaven saying, get your act together. What's wrong with you? Quit crying. Don't be a baby. Deal with it. He doesn't do that. God is great enough. He is kind enough to receive our expressive emotional need. God can handle your crying out to him in pain. 
Notice where the psalmist goes with all this agony. He goes to God. He's, he's openly honest with God. He says to God, this is exactly how I feel right now, and I'm spent. And where are you? And God is in no way repulsed by that kind of expression. It was almost a year ago to today that my family, we were on sabbatical last summer uh, from the church, and uh, we were uh, able to spend some time on our sabbatical in Hawaii, vacation there. The first day that we were there, my son and I, Ethan, he's with you guys on Hope Week somewhere uh, out there. Uh, if you see Ethan, tell him I told this story. He'll be real embarrassed. Um, we got into trouble on the ocean. Our first day there, actually our first few hours of the full day there, we got into some trouble on the ocean while paddle boarding. The wind was, was moving pretty rapidly and forcing us farther and farther out to sea than we had anticipated. And, and frankly, we didn't have the experience on the paddle boats to navigate the waves well. And so we're being carried out from this bay into the deep ocean, as it were, or at least that's how it felt we were going. And, and as we drifted out, my son became deeply concerned that this was going to be the end for us. I think it was the moment when a wave came up and capsized us off the paddle boats into the deep sea. We didn't have life vests on or anything. This is really not the smartest move on my part. I tossed him back up on the paddleboard, climbed up on myself, and then my son panicked and said, I'm going to die in Hawaii. <laughs> I'm like, well, it could be worse. It could be Kansas. I mean, <laughs> while I needed him to avoid completely going into hysterics on the paddleboard, I didn't find his anguish and his anxiety at all repulsive. In fact, it's because he was so concerned, because he was so desperately in need for help, that it inclined me more and more to love and to care for him. His anxiety and expressing and acknowledging it to me provided me the opportunity to care for his heart and to address his need. I could say to him, Ethan, God loves us. We're going to be okay. The same Jesus that we worship that calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee can calm this thing. He'll lead us. He'll care for us. And was able to address his heart. He didn't repulse me by acknowledging his fear. Your heavenly father is not repulsed by you acknowledging and saying, I'm anxious, Lord. By the way, we made it to this shore. We're okay. <laughs> we lived. <laughs> See, the, the presupposition about God that I'm coming to here is that God is good. And he is the best and most caring, gracious Heavenly Father there is. And he is the best one to take our anxiety to. He's not sitting up in heaven going, my children better keep a stiff upper lip, not show any emotion or anxiety. Instead, he gives you and me permission to come to him with our anxieties. He is the only one competent enough to handle our disarrayed and anxious hearts. In fact, when we hit a command like Jesus gives to not be anxious, it's because he's inviting us to take our anxiety to him. As beloved children, because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we are commanded to cast all our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for us. The invitation is to go with him, go to him with our anxiousness and pain and worry because of his love for us. So step one in dealing with your anxious heart is to acknowledge to God your anxiety. 
Express your fear to him. Express your worry. Express your concern. He loves to hear it and he loves to care for you. But let's not just leave it there. Let's take another step. The psalmist takes another step. He doesn't just cry out to God and say, where are you? He pushes deeper. And so the second step in addressing our anxious hearts is to ask questions about God's nature. Here we need to think about who God really is. Look at verses 5 through 9. The psalmist says, I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? The psalmist here does a deep dive into his life for the sake of his heart. He looks back and he says, I need to remember who God is and what God has done. So he he expresses that through three verbs in verses 5 and 6. Three verbs that show and give shape to how he is engaging and, and looking into his heart. He says, I will consider, that is to think about, to mull over, I'll ponder. Secondly, he says, I remember, I I draw back from the past what is true and good and right and remember and bring it to the front of my mind. And thirdly, I meditate. I, I fill my heart and my mind with truth and I mull over who God is and what he has done. Each of these verbs, consider, remember, meditate, invite us into a shape of prayer that deals with the interior world of our souls. They call us to a reflective pondering of God and His words. It says, verse 6, my spirit made a diligent search. He's like, let me pull the e-brake on life right now. Let me ponder and press into my heart and remember and think and consider who God is and what He has done. And to make this search, he he asks some questions. Here's how he goes about uh, inquiring and figuring out what's going on in his heart and, and, and dealing with his soul. He, he asks questions. Verse 7 through 9 catalogs the questions that he asked. Now, I don't believe the psalmist here is asking questions in a cynical manner or a skeptical way, trying to put God uh, in the witness stand, as it were, or on trial and cross-examining him to find fault. The psalmist is saying to himself, I have to go back and to remember when things were good. I've got to remember truth from steadier times so that I can find my footing in an anxious moment. I need to remember what is right. And so he asks these questions, they're rhetorical questions, and the answer to each one of these questions is no. These questions really boil down to considering God's goodness and his covenant love. So he says in verse 7, is God going to hold me at arm's length forever? Is God just going to like, you stand over there and keep your stink and anxiousness away from me? Is that what God does? Or in verse 8, has God abandoned his promised love and goodness towards me? Did God say, nope, I'm out, too much, I don't love forever, like I said, my promises, I'm not not carrying them out anymore. Or the third question, verse 9, is God just tired and done with being gracious and compassionate with me? Has he forgotten to be gracious? In his anger, shut up all his compassion? The answer to every one of those questions is no, no, no. God has not given up. He has not abandoned. He is not done with his steadfast love towards his people. These questions are there to help us think and see who God is. 
This is how I like to think about it. In some ways, we need to rickroll our hearts with this truth. Do you know what a rickroll is? Yeah, a few of you. Okay. You may have been the happy victim of this at one point or another. You got an email or a text message with, with some promised thing if you click on a certain link. Here's how to earn a million dollars just by sleeping. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, yes, I'm in. And you click the link, and all of a sudden it flips you over to YouTube, and there's Rick Ansley singing his song, Never Gonna Give You Up. It's happened like 1.3 billion times because of this joke. But how great is that? Like, I, it's a funny thing to me when that happens. Like, I click it, like, oh, I got it, yeah. But how, how good is that to hear? Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down, never gonna turn around and desert you. It's amazing. That's what we need to rickroll our hearts with about God towards us. He will not give us up. He will not let us down. He will not desert his people. He loves you. And he's proven that in Christ Jesus. So just rickroll your heart with that. I hope that song sticks in the head uh, the rest of the day. Much of our anxiety and, and really the result of it is because we don't slow down enough to perceive reality with God in it. The practice of spiritual meditation and consideration that the psalmist is talking about here, of remembering, is a necessary practice for us to slow down and to help our hearts and our minds identify who God is. Tim Keller wrote, he said, to meditate is to ask oneself questions about the truth, such as what difference does this make? Am I taking this seriously? If I forget this, how will that affect me? Have I forgotten it? Am I living in light of this truth? We need to ask ourselves in order to remember, especially when we are anxious, so we are reminded of who God is. We need to go to the resources of the Bible, the scriptures, to inform us of God's character and nature, his unending love and compassion. So what does this look like practically? I think it looks like practically spending regular time in slowness and reflection. I hope that you spend time daily just in the Word of God and prayer. It doesn't have to be super long, maybe, maybe 20, 30 minutes. Just get in the Word and pray. But, but it's good for you to take a day a week, some time each week, and just to slow down more expansively. And I would even advocate for taking a day a month to spend in silence and solitude with the Lord if you're able to, in order to reflect and remember. Get the Scriptures open and say, God, show me who you are. Open up a journal and, and write out your anxiety. Express it to him. Share your feelings with God. Ask questions of your heart of who God is. And, and then I would also suggest that you seek a friend, a Christian friend, a spiritual director who can help guide you in asking these questions and direct you to the truth of God's character. I have this spiritual director in my own life. His name is Rusty. We meet once a month together and, and Rusty is not the typical kind of, uh, he's not a counselor in that sense where I go and say, here's all the stuff, and then Rusty goes, okay, well, here's all the answers, and how, here's how you fix it. I, I get on the phone with, or on Zoom with Rusty, and I say, here's the stuff, and Rusty says, okay, let's talk to God about it. I'm just going to back up and pray with you, pray for you while you pray. You talk to God about this. And so Rusty's like my friend who just takes me to God together so that we can ask these deep questions and deal with the anxiety in my heart. If we will deep dive in our hearts on who God is and what he has done, we will find the stability of his nature helping address the anxiousness of our own hearts. So step one here is to address our anxious hearts before God. It's to acknowledge our anxiety to him. Step two is then to ask questions about God's nature. Who is he? And these are good, but they require a third step. To address our anxious hearts, we have to take 
fully this third step, and that is to appeal to God's character. Appeal to God's character. Now, the rest of this psalm deals with this appeal to God's character, but I think it started and summarized in verses 10 through 12. He says, then I will appeal to this, or another way of saying it is, then I will stand on this truth, this reality. What is that truth or reality that he's going to appeal to and and set as the bedrock foundation of his life in anxious moments? It's to the years of the right hand of the Most High. That's a unique expression there. It says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So here the psalmist makes a pivot. He kind of turns and he says, I've been thinking about my stuff, but now I want to think about who God is. I, I call this a days of future past approach. Looking at the solid ground of God's character as seen in his past works, what he's done in history in order to steady my heart for the future. He's like jumping out of his bed. I get it. I'm going to appeal to this. This is what I'm going to stand on. Now, in this phrase, to the years of the right hand of of the Most High, it's an interesting phrase because we don't think of God as having years. God's eternal and infinite. He has no beginning. He has no ending. So what years are we talking about? Well, he's just looking back in his history and in human history from his point back and saying, that looks like where God's been at work. Here's what God has been doing. The expression, the right hand of the Most High, is an expression of God's power for the sake of His people. Whenever you see the Bible talking about the right hand of the Most High, it's saying God in His strong arm is coming to work on your behalf. So he goes on to meditation and reflection again here. Verse 11 and 12, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder, think about all your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. He's just putting into his heart and his mind the good and wonderful works of God and saying, you know what? As one theologian put it, God and God alone is man's highest good. And to do that, he goes historically back. He said, let's look at God's track record. Let's see how God has acted in human history. He goes back for the people of Israel into their history and speaks about the Exodus event. And this is why we need the Old Testament to help us remember the history of God and his work for his people so that we will remember that today. So he looks back and he says, remember the Exodus event? How we as a people were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. We were captive to Pharaoh and under his oppression. And it was horrible. And then, guess what? God showed up and he worked powerfully. He worked amazing ways. And so he, so he says, look back at God, verse 13. Who is great like our God? Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is, is great like our God? The answer is, there is none. And he says, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. God, with, with his massive strength, with his all-consuming power, showed up in Egypt and laid out plagues to, to rip away the people of God from the, the oppressors of the Egyptians. He worked wonders, and he redeemed his people. Verse 15, you with your arm, That strong right arm redeemed, saved your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. That's what God does. He is great. He works wonders, and he works wonders in order to save and to rescue. He's telling the Israelites, but he's telling us, look at God's track record. Look at his history. And then he focuses in on that pivotal moment when the anxiety was the highest. Right? So God, God releases Israel from Egypt. The last plague, the plague of the firstborn happened, and Pharaoh says, all right, I'm tapping out on this. 
Go, get away from here. And Israel plunders Egypt and they leave. They, they head out into the, to the wilderness towards the land flowing with milk and honey that God has promised to them. And, and God is leading them and he leads them right up to the, to the shore of the ocean. And, and they're there at the Red Sea looking at it going, okay, what do we do to cross here? And then all of a sudden they hear behind them the noise of the Egyptians coming to take them back into captivity. And they're like, we're toast. No way forward, no way back. We're dead in the ocean, we're dead there. What do we do? You can just feel the tension of that. And the psalmist here says, remember that moment? Remember that time? Where was God? He showed up. He didn't abandon his people. He didn't forsake his loving kindness. He showed his might and power and cut a path right through the sea in order for his people to walk on dry ground to safety. Right there in their Deepest worry and trouble and anxiety, as verse 20 says it, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You split the waters. The psalmist says, when, God, when the waters saw God, they split themselves. They were afraid. The clouds, the fury, the thunder. Your way, God, was through the sea, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, he's appealing to all of this because he's appealing to the character and history of God in their history. The character of God for his children is that of a faithful father, a loving shepherd. He takes his people by the hand and leads them to safety in their deepest anxiety and worry. And this is the step for you and I in our anxiety and in our concern. It's to appeal to God's character. It's such a pivotal step for us. Why? Because God has not changed. He is the same God who rescued Israel from their captivity and bondage. He, he, he is the one who has rescued us. Our own days of future past reflections should take us to the Red Sea to remind us of what God did there, but it also should take us more greatly to the hill of Golgotha, to Calvary, where, where Jesus, as the good shepherd, takes his people by the hand at the moment of our greatest anxiety and despair and leads us away from death and destruction to security and safety in his salvation. Jesus took our anxieties upon himself. He went to the cross on our behalf. He suffered and died in our place and laid down his life for his sheep. Well, Israel was led like a flock by the shepherd, by the hand of Moses and Aaron, we have one who is a greater Moses, a greater Aaron, Christ Jesus, the Lord God, who died in our place for us. It is his grace that leads us to the place of perfect peace and rest. So what you and I need to do when we are anxious and filled with, with the turmoil of our hearts and our lives is to appeal to the cross once again in our anxiety. Get our eyes on the greatest work of God to rescue us and to secure our future. Friends, beloved, if you are anxious about the things of this life, if you're anxious about your future, anxious about your relationships, if you're anxious about your well-being or about anything, I implore you to appeal to the cross of Jesus and to his character in order to steady your soul. You could say, I know that God is for me, that he is full of love and compassion towards me, and that he has nothing but my ultimate good at heart, because Jesus came and lived and died for me. The evidence of that is there at the cross. He's done that for you. 
So make Christ and him crucified the appeal of your mind to your heart about God's character and his love for you. And let that appeal be what steadies and settles your anxious heart. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that your character and your reputation is so solid and sure. You have expressed again and again your love for us. We see it most deeply, most, most greatly at the cross where we, we need you the most in our sin, in our shame, in our brokenness. And in our anxiety, Lord, you have met us with your love in Jesus. So I would pray, Father, in, in the way that the psalmist prays, Lord, hear our cries, hear our anxious hearts, hear our need and our brokenness, and, and apply to our lives the steady sureness of your unfailing love and faithfulness. Draw us closer to you. Grow our faith and trust in you. And may we see you are the God who loves and saves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.